No, really. Islam and Christianity are really the same thing. So said uh, this man that I had known and this man that we were talking to. Um, <laughs> I had just finished doing a wedding on, a, on the Persian Gulf. And the boat driver, the captain of the ship, was, uh, he had, uh, was a Muslim. He had grown up in Oman. He had traveled the world. He had gone back to his home country. And uh, he was in Dubai, sort of driving this boat. So me and him, we got in this discussion about Christianity and Islam. And I replied to him, but you know, really, they are very different. And you know what the difference is? It all comes down to who you say Jesus is. Everyone believes that he exists. You believe he exists, I said. I do as well. But if he says, or if he is who he says he is, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Heaven and hell is at stake. Forgiveness of sins is at stake. Being freed from judgment. All of that is at stake. And either we are then living for God or we are living against God. Christianity, all of it, hangs on the belief that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God the Son in the flesh. And this is the message we preach. It is the apostolic message. The good news of Jesus Christ is that in God's mercy and in his grace, he sent Jesus to save sinners. Those who have so clearly rebelled against their creator. And then the just punishment for turning our backs on him is hell. But this is where God's mercy is highlighted. He sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. He took the punishment and the wrath that we rightly deserved. And then he was raised from the dead, ensuring that we then would live new lives with him. And this dawning of light in the Savior is what shines light on our path, where we now know love, like we actually know love. We have forgiveness of sins, deliverance from darkness, a right relationship with God. And how is it that he then withholds what we rightly deserve and gives to us what we don't? It's because God is a God of mercy and of grace. Today we begin looking at the four-part series, Jesus Christ, God Incarnate. So this week we look at Luke chapter 1. Next week, Pastor Rick will preach from Luke chapter 2. The week after, we'll be looking at Matthew 1, and then finally on December 22nd, we'll finish off with John chapter 1. So we're all in the beginnings of the Gospels, all except Mark, that is. Uh, and if you're visiting with us today, and you don't, you're not that familiar with the Gospels, the Gospels were written so that people who read them might know that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God incarnate, the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name. So again, if if, if this is somewhat new to you, I hope that you are sort of stunned at this audacious claim and what's implied in it. It implies that if you don't know this Jesus, then you don't really know true life. You don't really have the true life. So I hope you're asking questions like, who is this Jesus, really? What could it mean for you to have this life in his name? I was at Petco the other day um, buying crickets for my lizards, and I was talking to the guy who helps me regularly. And uh, I said, have you ever been to church? And he sort of went, he kind of chuckled. Uh, I said, I'm a pastor and I teach the Bible. I said, have you ever wondered about what, who Jesus Christ is and what he means for you? If he says, if he is who he says he is, 
You never really thought about it. So I hope you're wondering these things, if these things are somewhat new to you. Well, in God's kindness, he has revealed himself to us. And the revelation he gives us is accurate. So we know the answers to all those questions. So go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 4, 1 to 4. Because he has revealed himself to us, we can trust his revelation. It is accurate. We can investigate it knowing that we aren't going to be duped. We're not going to be conned. God, after all, is the God of truth. And so what he reveals is true. It's good. It is perfect. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 1, written by a doctor, a physician. And here he sets out his purpose for writing and we see how, how, how accurate God's revelation is. I'll just go ahead and read it. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is written around the 60s AD. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So there he's talking about Jesus. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. That is the eyewitness testimony that they've seen and experienced. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, so the aim here that Luke is putting forward is he wants to put forward a record, just like the eyewitnesses have given them an account. So he then wants to give others an account, but this time a written account. The manner in which he does it, it is orderly. Did you see that here? He intends very much, as he's followed all things closely for some time past, to put forward an orderly account, one that we can actually trust, one that is accurate. And the purpose is that this man, Theophilus, which his name means God-lover, which also symbolizes all Christians in general, is so that we might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught concerning the things that have been accomplished in their day, namely what Jesus Christ has accomplished and his way of salvation. So here these gospels, and in fact the Bible itself is given to us so that we might believe and have life in Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Uh, and the Bible presents this grand sweeping story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation, where God in all of his wisdom, in all of his knowledge, in all of his power, with all of his mercy, and grace moves forward to save sinners in Christ. Right from Genesis to Revelation, thousands of years have passed. In fact, it begins in eternity past as God determines, as he predestines, as he moves. And then it goes into eternity future as Jesus Christ then is worshipped. But here today, amidst that grand sweeping story of redemption... We find ourselves dealing with a particular family in a particular place, dealing with particular struggles. And so what this what this passage does is sort of enters, takes us into like this street view of what's going on in God's salvation history as he redeems people. This is a street view where we see that God moves to save through very unexpected ways. So if you're taking notes, that's point number one. God moves to save through very unexpected ways. And then number two, we see the rejoicing that comes with it. Point number one, God moves to save through very unexpected ways. And, and we begin here in chapter one, verses five to seven. I'll go ahead and read there. Remember, keep in mind, this is the street view 
of things, God's plan of salvation. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, so it's a historical fact, by the way. So Luke is telling us, okay, we're locating ourselves here in history. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So here this couple is an all-too-regular couple among the priesthood of Israel. Zechariah was one of 8,000 priests that served, and uh, there were 24 divisions um, basically, that they, they had the task of serving two one-week terms every year at the temple. And so Zechariah's uh, division here is called to serve. And Elizabeth is a very famous stock. She is from Aaron. So, you know, Moses and Aaron. But what hung over her head wasn't sort of the glory of her lineage, but it was actually the shame that came from being barren. So in society in those days, they would look down, it was sort of like something that certainly brought shame if one couldn't have a child. Here she knew that uh, the shame she was carrying around was the fact that her lineage, her line, at least with her particular family, was going to be terminated. It was going to end. She was barren. And as the scripture says, they were both both advanced in years. (laughs) That sounds like a very politically... Correct way of saying they were old. But that was their plight. And that's actually what kicks off this story here. They were barren. But though they had issues as a couple, Zechariah's career, he's all too regular priest, Zechariah's career is about to actually go on the uptick, a high point. In fact, an opportunity of a lifetime. So his division was serving at the temple. And then he's chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense on behalf of the nation. So incense represents sort of the prayers of the people going up before God like a sweet aroma. And all of Israel is outside praying at the same time uh, that Zechariah is praying and offering up incense here. He's, he, imagine he's standing before the Holy of Holies, so he's not inside of He's before it, so you have the curtain there. Um, and he's offering up sacri- this sacrifice to God. Once in a lifetime event, And in fact, the priests were restricted to only doing it once in their lifetime. So let's say if they were drawn twice, they couldn't do it twice. So this is once in a lifetime opportunity here. And you can imagine it's exciting times in in an otherwise regular life of a priest. Um, But this wouldn't be the only once in a lifetime event, of course. Look at verse 11. It says that he went into the holy place and an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Of course, uh, you know, we put up our tree yesterday. Uh, I'm sure you guys are going to be putting up your trees. Here, the angels aren't like the chubby fat babies that you would hang on your tree. Um, Here, the angel brings fear upon them. And so he responds with great great fear, it says. And look what the angel says in 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Uh, it's best not to understand this this passage um, as Zechariah is sort of disregarding his responsibilities as priest to intercede for the, all of the people, right? It's not like he goes into the holy places with his incense and says, you know, I really should be ministering for you all on behalf of you all before God. But instead, you know, chuck that and, you know, dear God, please give me a child. 
he's interceding for the people. But what's interesting here is that God answers his prayer, deliverance for the people, in a very unexpected way, through a baby. This is the first unexpected way. It's taking, giving a child, a baby, to a barren couple. And the angel says that through, though they struggle with infertility, they indeed in due time will, will experience very much so joy and gladness. Free from shame. Eventually we'll look at how her reproach is sort of taken away from her because of the wonderful things that God is doing. But even more so they experience joy and gladness because of who this baby is and what he means for the people and what he would do. So uh, this is who he is there in verse 15. He would be great before the Lord. Chapter 1 verse 76 calls John a prophet of the Most High. That is a prophet of God. And he'd be great. And this is no ordinary man. He is set apart by God. Uh, and the point there is made as, he, as it goes on. says he must not drink strong wine or strong drink. Um, so there were some folks who took a vow who were set apart especially for God, and they would not cut their hair. Um, they would not be drinking alcohol. But instead, they would be filled with the Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, the Scripture says. So this is no ordinary man. And the Spirit would utterly empower him in a unique way uh, for his whole life, even from the womb, as we're going to see a little bit later. But what does he do? As he's going to be great before the Lord, a prophet of the Most High, that is God. Because Most High is just a way of referring to God, the Almighty. He's going to, verse 16 and 17, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And it's described in these ways, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So there's like the fathers would be assuming their God-given responsibility to disciple and evangelize their children. And then the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that is ultimately the wisdom of God, the wisdom of Christ. So rebels would be turned towards God. And the purpose there, it says, is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is John the Baptist, his adult ministry. This is what his purpose was. He was to, as he himself says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So salvation history is leading up all the way to this point with all of God's wisdom and determination to save sinners. And this is the final prophet of the old covenant days before Jesus comes, the last one. And he paves the way so that Jesus can then come. This is huge. You know, up until that point, prophecy to Israel had not been heard for 400 years. 400 years. And so you would imagine what they might think as, you know, the prophets, you know, what exactly are they prophesying? It's, it's, it's near silence. But finally, after centuries, it sort of lands up here to this all too regular couple of Israel. What's interesting also is that the last they heard in terms of prophecy in the Old Testament was Malachi 4, 5. And this closes the Old Testament, okay? This is what it says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet of course elijah's gone before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so he says the boy that you will have is the end times prophet and so there stands zechariah he receives this this glorious vision 
angel of God. And you would imagine that he would be so excited. He'd just bust out of the temple, praising God, saying God has spoken. And he's moving in such a way to deliver his people and in unexpected ways. He's giving us a child who is set apart for the Lord, the end times prophet. But unfortunately, he doesn't do that. And he doubts there in verse 18. So apparently, right, he's, he's fearful. Apparently he gets over his fear that this is the angel of God who stands before him and he throws up this like human response. I'm old. And my wife is old. And I love Gabriel's response there. It's almost like he backs up a little bit and says, let me start again. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and God has sent me to tell you this good news. Gabriel had also turned up to Daniel, who also was sort of an end times prophet, prophesying about the time when the king would come and deliver the people and establish his kingdom. Daniel, he responds to Gabriel. Eventually he is mute. He falls in fear. He's silenced. And this is here exactly what we see Zechariah doing. Because of his doubt, God then tells him that he will be deaf and mute until the day of the, these things take place. That's in verse 20, which basically is the birth of John the Baptist. So eventually he comes out. There's the story goes along. The people were seriously worried because the priests were known for saying short prayers. Not because they weren't holy, uh, but it was because uh, if, it was a, if they were in there for a long period of time, they thought something was wrong. That God was displeased, not pleased with them. And so they're worried as they all are standing back there praying as well for themselves. He comes out and they realize that he had seen a vision. And verse 22 says it was like charades. So he's basically making signs that the angel of God appeared. That his, her, his wife will be pregnant. And then eventually he goes back to his home. A hillside in Judea. Verse 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So there you see that reversal here. God moving in unexpected ways, taking a barren and elderly couple who knew societal shame and he uses them. To bring about the prophet of the Most High, whom, John, whom Jesus had said, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And it would be this prophet who would go before the Lord, preparing the people's hearts for the Messiah. So as God was moving once again to save, he unexpectedly chooses to use a barren couple. But he also uses a virgin woman. He also uses a virgin woman. This is the second thing. The way God moves in unexpected ways. Look there in 26 and 27. In the sixth month, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, as we read this scripture we're supposed to be wondering, okay, so God brought this good news to a barren couple. What news will he bring to this virgin? And we have to acknowledge that scripture is very clear that Mary is in fact a virgin. So if you're getting in conversations about uh, Christianity and the truths of Christianity, here we have to be clear, Mary is a virgin. It's not like they're making these things up. It, it says what it says. By the way, if you're thinking about evangelism, join us back tonight for our first uh, 
we have an evening service on the first Sunday night of every month. And tonight we're going to be looking at evangelism and how we can be evangelizing others and be a witness for Christ. That's tonight at 6 p.m. Um, so here, it's really clear. Mary is a virgin. Twice in verse 7, the word virgin is used. And it is true that this word can be used for just a girl. But as the context shows, it is so clear that she is actually a virgin. Not, I mean, she, she's only betrothed to a man. She isn't even married to the man yet. As in, they weren't married and they weren't having sex. So according to Jewish law, one could receive, you know what, for adultery or sleeping around if you aren't yet married, it's punishable by death. Although in reality, they didn't really carry it out. But there is such, there is such a stigma of shame brought upon those who are sleeping around prior to marriage um, that it would be really difficult for people to get betrothed if that were going on. But here, Mary is betrothed, that is, she is engaged, planning to be married to Joseph. Later on in the passage, it's clear that Gabriel says she will conceive of Jesus in her womb. And then she responds, and she says, well, how can this be, since I am a virgin? Now, those words there, the Greek words there, means, I do not know a man. And that's specifically used for sexual relationships. She says, I have not had sex with a man. So you could say, I mean, the options are you could say, well, it doesn't really mean what it says. But according to the, the context, you know, that seems pretty unlikely. So Luke here set out to provide an orderly account. And remember, it is one that can be trusted. It means what it says. It is a different question altogether if you are saying or if your friends are saying it says what it says, but I just don't really believe it. That's a question that Zechariah faced, didn't he? Look at verses 28 and 30. The story goes on. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. This is Gabriel talking. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So here, this is unexpected. She herself was wondering what exactly this means that the angels appeared to her and is giving her these great greetings. But not only that, this is a little, a young teenager, okay? This is 13 or 14. So it is true that their 13 and 14 year old girls were probably much more mature than the average present day 13 or 14 year old. But still, you know, if you're 13, 14 years old, you know, what exactly are you thinking as you go about your day? You're learning things from your mom in the house. You're wondering, in her case, what it might be like to be married to this person, Joseph, who she will marry. She's been betrothed to him. Other than that, though, you're really experiencing life as a 13-year-old. And she's in, like, this, this village town. It's, it's in Nazareth. And there's a saying, you know, what good can come from Nazareth? Not only was it small, but the, the saying implies that uh, they were sort of known for being up to no good. So this really is unexpected. This is some no-name town, right? This is not Jerusalem. I mean, the angel, God could have chosen the high priest's daughter, right? There would have been, there would have been much greater response, perhaps. Someone of, you know, significance. But then he chooses to use this rural village girl. 13, 14 years old. Righteous woman. A woman of God, he chooses to use her to bring about his great plans. So this is unexpected. 
You have the barren couple. Then you have God using the virgin. The third unexpected thing is, is that this baby is God. Come in the flesh. God would become one of us to deliver us. Look, just as Gabriel brought the news about who John would be and what he would do, so he does the same for Jesus. Look there in 32. This is who Jesus is. And he tells her, he will be great. And there's supposed to be a, a, a comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist was great before the Lord, great before the Most High. He is, Jesus is the great one. He is great. Not only that, he will be called the son of the most high. There you should not think that God came down to have physical relations with Mary, as many Muslims do. Here, son is a position of authority. One who inherits the kingdom. One who is over everything. Most high is God there. So this is God, the most high, being developed in Mary's womb here. John the Baptist, however, is the prophet of the Most High, the prophet of Jesus. And uh, God will give him the throne of his father, David. So here Gabriel is referring to the prophecy given in 2 Samuel 7, which we'll go ahead and read a little bit later, uh, where it speaks of one from David's line would sit on the throne forever. So here Mary is told that she's going to bear this child to carry him and give birth to him. That is the Messiah. So she stands, keep in mind, this grand sweeping picture of God moving to save sinners through Jesus Christ is moving from eternity past up until this point right there where this little village girl is able to look back because she was schooled in Judaism. She knows the songs. She knows the scriptures. She knows the stories, as we're going to see later. And she's able to say, my goodness, right? All of God's plans are moving up and are reaching its fulfillment. And me, this little 13 or 14-year-old girl, plays a seriously significant point in that you see this reversal here where she will give birth to god himself god the son the one who would reign eternally there that's his mission this is what he would do and he will reign over the house of jacob which is another way of saying israel forever and of his great kingdom there will be no end and that's the verse that the pastor rick read from us earlier given by the way 700 years earlier before jesus came so as the story progresses, like Zechariah, Mary asks the question, but not one of doubt. She says, well, how will this, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the answer in 35 is God himself is the answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born to be born will be called holy or the holy one set apart one, the son of God. This is a Holy Spirit empowered pregnancy. Is not of man. This is a work of God. Especially when you come to that, that term there, overshadow. There what it refers to is when God would make his presence known in the tabernacle. When he would descend from heaven in the cloud. That people would know, everyone would know that God then is present. Also in the transfiguration. When Jesus and others go up to the mount there. That's, that's the language that is chosen here. He, God overshadows her. Therefore, the child will be... The child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. So this conception, this pregnancy would be brought about by the power of the most high. That is God. And the angel concludes there in 37. Look there in 37. Oh, look there in 36. Sorry. And behold, your, she, she asks a question and 
And Gabriel responds, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. So in other words, I already gave a child to this barren couple. Luke 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. He says, nothing will be impossible with that God. You see these great reversals taking place where God moves to save in unexpected ways using a barren couple, a virgin girl, and then taking on flesh, God becoming man to deliver sinners. And she responds there in 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, as we, as we seek to apply this passage where God clearly has mercy to individuals in their particular circumstances, even as he's moving with such great force and determination to bring about his plan of salvation. Um, I think we can easily apply it to our lives here as we see that Jesus Christ does great things for us. So amidst these stories of God moving, we must acknowledge the most expected thing of all, that God will become man to save rebellious men. And so if you are a Christian, this should, in fact, amaze you, even though we might not be in the the position that Mary was or even the position that Elizabeth was and Zechariah was in. But here we can look to Jesus in faith, just as they were looking to God in faith and their Messiah in faith. So we look to him who died on the cross for our salvation, one who has gone before us in every way and one who gives aid in our circumstances. So you see. God giving aid to Zechariah and Elizabeth's circumstance. And so you see God giving aid to Mary's particular circumstance. And so Jesus Christ gives us aid as well. And he dies for our sins on the cross. Unfortunately, there are many people who think that the gospel is merely something that you believe just to get into salvation. And then it's something that you move on from. But the gospel is not something that you move away from, but it's something that you press deeper into. And so there you see that in Christ you have a lifeline, if you are a Christian, for every particular circumstance of your life. Whether you are struggling to tell the truth as a young boy. Whether you are facing death as an older, elderly, advanced in years person. I think somebody who understood this well was an 18th century theologian named Jonathan Edwards, former president of Princeton University. He was, a known, he was known for ascending sort of the storehouses of God's mind uh, by the power of the Spirit, meditating on theology. But he was also known, if you read some of his letters, for applying this theology to people in particular circumstances. And here he holds out God. He holds out Jesus Christ, the one who comes to our aid in all circumstances, to a gal named Mary Peppera, who was suffering from depression. She had lost a loved one. She was seriously depressed. And Jonathan Edwards asked her husband if he could write her this letter pointing her to Jesus whose life and death offers hope. And this is what he says. He says, We see then, dear madam, how rich and how adequate is the provision which God has made for our consolation, so our comfort, in all of our afflictions, in giving us a redeemer of such glory and such love, especially when it is considered what were the ends of this great manifestation of beauty and love in his death. He suffered that we might be delivered. 
His soul was exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, to take away the sting of sorrow and to impart everlasting consolation. He was oppressed and afflicted that we might be supported. He was overwhelmed in the darkness of death that we might have light of life. He was cast into the furnace of God's wrath that we might drink of the rivers of his pleasures. His soul was overwhelmed with a flood of sorrow that our hearts might be overwhelmed with a flood of eternal joy. You see how Jesus Christ here is the lifeline for every particular situation of our life who holds out hope in his life and his death, but also in his resurrection, in his future, in his current life as he lives from the dead. This is what he says. Now he was dead, but he is alive and he lives forevermore. Death may deprive us of our friends here. Now, keep in mind here, this is someone who has suffered the loss of a loved one. And he's speaking to her bluntly, clearly holding out Christ, who is, his, who is her hope. Death may deprive us of our friends here, but it cannot deprive us of this, our best friend. We have this best friend of friends, this mighty redeemer to go to in all our afflictions. And so, so basically for us, it means that he can identify with us. He knows what we're going to what we're going through. He doesn't fail to understand where you are at this point in your in your Christian walk. He says he has suffered far greater sorrow than we have ever suffered. And if we are actually united to him, the union can never be broken, but will continue when we die. And when heaven and earth are dissolved. Therefore. In this, we may be confident, though the earth be removed in him we shall triumph with everlasting joy. That's the confidence that Michael was praying about earlier. Because Jesus is who he says he is and he has done what he said he would do. The beautiful salvation we have here, isn't it? We have a deliverer who gives us hope. And Edwards uses this, these things to bring praises to God. To exalt him as he goes about um, walking the Christian life. And he sings. But this isn't only for theologians of the caliber of Jonathan Edwards. This is for all of us, those who understand the unexpected mercies of God. So we're going to turn now. We looked at how God moves in unexpected ways. Now we're going to turn to the rejoicing that comes with it. This is point number two, the rejoicing that comes with it. And really, this is the rest of the chapter. And I know this kind of feels like two separate sermons, but there it is. Uh, these seemingly nobodies, these, this elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then this young village gal, Mary, they know the mercies of God. And the rest of the chapter, they're just delighting in, in who God is and what he's doing for them and for their people. And this moves us to Mary's hymn. This is called the Magnificat. It's a Latin translation uh, for the word to magnify or to make large. And that's exactly what Mary does. Uh, the context here is Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. There in 39. And look what happens in 41. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me. That the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold when the sound of, of your greeting. Came into my ears. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, you might think, like, my goodness, okay, this is difficult to understand. You have John the Baptist, who is a fetus, jumping in her womb because he recognizes 
that there is a zygote in Mary who is Jesus. But in relation to who God is and what the spirit is supposed to do, right? the purpose of the spirit's uh, work is to exalt Jesus Christ. And so when you understand those things, it's no surprise that it, it's no surprise when it says that John the Baptist will be filled with the spirit even from his mother's womb. And so being filled with the spirit, he recognizes that the Lord, his Lord, the one whose way he is supposed to, to clear. So he leaps for joy. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she knows that this woman, Mary, bears her own savior. Incredible, isn't it? That God would become man. And even in something like that, you're seeing here God's plan of redemption unfolding as John the Baptist paves the way for this child in Mary's womb. We get to Mary's hymn here. Uh, and it start, starts off with praise concerning her, herself in 46 to 50. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So that's the headline. My soul magnifies the Lord. The answer is why? Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Right? So this is a woman of little means, of humble means. And there's a nobody compared to, you know, let's say again, the, the high priest's daughter. But God chooses by his grace to use this village gal. And then from then on, she would be known as the blessed one. Who had the privilege of carrying Jesus in her womb. So those of you with children or those of you who've been around children, you know, it's odd. I remember one time actually seeing Jeremiah move in, in uh, Melanie's womb. And he made this really long move. It was like his elbow is freaky. So his arm moved like this. And, and you can imagine Mary had the experience of feeling Jesus, you know, move around in her womb. And she delights. She's able to say, okay, God is moving up to this point in history. And then she, again, she's going to look forward and say, look at all the things that God will do because of this baby here in my womb. The theme of God's mercy Lifting up the humble continues. She understands it in herself. But then she moves and speaks about how God's mercy will come towards all of his people. Bringing down the proud, exalting the humble. Look there in 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So you got to wonder in the history of Israel, you know, who might... Mary have been thinking about here this pious young teen she has in mind particular people having grown up and being schooled in Judaism uh, Kent Hughes says that perhaps she's thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar the ruler of Babylon in the book of Daniel so here he he was consumed with his own glory and he refused to repent of his sin. And he was so proud that basically he looks over after he's pondering whether or not he should confess his sin. He ponders, he looks over great Babylon and he said, is this not great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now here he's speaking in ways that only God should speak, right? He was proud, but then God moves to scatter him in his own thoughts. Eventually he goes crazy, right? He starts eating the grass of the field. He was the mighty one who then was brought down. 
And God, though, comes to the rescue of Daniel, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are the humble, and then he exalts them. And you can think of Joseph, how God did the same with them. You can think of Ruth, how God did the same with her. You can think of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, how God did the same with her. All these folks were known to hunger after righteousness. Which is why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And so they are filled. Praise God that this has been God's mode of operation throughout time. Acting swiftly and powerfully to confound the ways of the so-called wise. Especially by dying on the cross for sinners. Mary concludes there in 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his offspring forever. So clearly he, she has God's people in mind here. That which God had promised thousands of years before. God was moving in such a way to bring that to fulfillment. He's making good on his promises. He promised to Abraham that nations would come from him. And that he would be a blessing to all of them. And that baby in Mary's womb would be the seed of blessing to all who had faith like Abraham. That's the first song of rejoicing. Then we come to the second song of rejoicing, this time by Zechariah. And this is called the Benedictus, which is basically calling out blessing to God. Eventually, Elizabeth gives birth to the baby and they name him John. And when the baby's born, finally, then God grants him back his speech and he blesses God. Look at verse 67. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. There in verse 67 and then he says blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited and redeemed his people he has raised up a horn of salvation for, for us in the house of his servant david as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So he praises, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And what's the reason? For he has visited and redeemed his people. Notice, did you guys notice the past tense there? <clears throat> like the babies haven't even come out of the womb yet. And he's saying that, that God has already done these things. But he speaks in a prophetic way here where he is so sure that God will, in fact, have victory over Satan and death and that his people who have faith in Christ will as well, that he says that he has already done it. He's so sure that he speaks as if God has done it, that he has already accomplished his great plan of salvation. And he says he's raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Uh, so here you should think of like. You know, if you got a mascot, you don't slap a cow sitting among daisies as your mascot, generally speaking. You know, you put a bull or an ox on there with two mighty horns. And those horns say to you, you don't mess with the bull. It's defensive. He moves forward in offense with those mighty horns. And then this, this imagery was transferred over to God. God, it says, is the mighty horn of my salvation. Psalm 18, 2 verse says. And he is the king, the one who reigns with all power and with all authority from the line of David. Again, quoting from 2 Samuel 7. This is what it says here, where God was going to make good on a promise that he made to David. This is what it says. When your days are fulfilled, this is 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Zechariah knows these things are taking place. That's why he says he spoke these things by the mouth of the prophets. And he goes on 71 and 73, which we've read already. He promises to Abraham, which is a reference to this, where God says in Genesis 22, by myself, I have sworn. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply the offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And God does this in 74. And why God does this, that we being delivered from our enemies, namely Satan, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness. Here, This is the Christian's purpose. After redemption, when God delivers us from Satan and death as he dies on the cross for our sins, the great God man, we then are freed to live for Jesus Christ, to serve him without fear in holiness. To make large his name, which is what, which, which is what uh, Mary does in her great Magnificat. As she magnifies, it means to make large God. And then as Zechariah does, as he calls out blessings to God. Jesus Christ here is the one who brings forgiveness to us. Forgiveness of our sins on the cross through his shed blood. So Jesus Christ is not just a moral example. So if you're talking to your friends and you're evangelizing them, make it clear that Jesus Christ is not just a moral example. He's not just a brother of brothers. But he is Christ the Lord, God our Savior, born of a virgin. But is Jesus Christ the Most High God, who accomplishes salvation for us on the cross? Um, why, would we, why would you not want to repent and believe? If you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a Christian. You know, a lot of people think that Christianity is something that brings fear. That it is a prison for people. That they worship a God who is a God who who is a tyrant over them. Who brings nothing what but do's and don'ts. But you see here as Mary gives praise to God. As Zechariah is lifting up praises to God, right? You don't get that from them. Here they understand that in Jesus Christ there is unexpected mercies. Look at verse 78. Right, God moves to save all because of the tender mercies of God. Tender mercies of God. How often do you think of Christianity like that? And if you don't think of Christianity like that, the gospel calls you to repent and believe. We don't worship a God who is a tyrant, but a savior, and one who knows love and one who gives love. The tender mercies of God. Well, clearly God moves in unexpected ways to save. He uses a barren couple, an elderly couple. He uses a virgin woman. He himself sends Jesus, the God-man, who takes on flesh to die on the cross for sins. And we see the rejoicings that comes with it. To conclude, Luke 1 presents us with a God who is moving to save through unexpected means. The question then is, what is our response? Is it worship and praise? Saying, God has done great things for me. You know, this is one reason, as we apply this text corporately, this is one reason why we sing. <clears throat> Today there's this notion where uh, singing in church is a personal experience, where you yourself have your own private devotions. This is why it's encouraged, you know, if you want to sit down, or if you want to stand up, 
or if you want to sing, or if you want to be quiet. All these things are options so that you as individuals can do whatever you please. Now, I'm not saying those things are inherently sinful, not at all. Um, But when we understand corporate praise, where we understand that God has moved in such a way to ransom sinners from the or from their sins through the cross, through his blood, then us as a church, we gather together to sing praises to God in unison. You guys know that, that actually singing praises to one another is an aspect of being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking the truth in love to one another? So this is why we should all be encouraged to sing praises to God vocally. So whether you have a good voice or a bad voice, you ought to sing. And it is a very good thing because when I see other people who are different than me, let's say Robert, for example, who's from Hungary, he might have different interests than I do. He is praising God, the same God that I'm praising, and we praise together. It exalts what unites us, doesn't it? That is the the, the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Yeah, we might differ on all these other things, but we are united fundamentally because we share the same Lord and we share the same spirit. So as we close and sing about the tender mercies of God, as we sing, uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, may we together in unison, in response to God's salvation plan, lift up our voices in praise. Praising God to one another and encouraging us to live without fear before our great God. If you're visiting with us today, once again, and you know yourself not to be a believer, God wants for you to live as you were designed to live in relationship with him, loving his son in being show showered with love from on high in living in and loving him who is light. This is as verse 78 and 79 put it, the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And all that through the God-man Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for being such a wise God. For being a God who knows all things, a God who is all-powerful, a God who is all-present, a God who is all-merciful and gracious, but at the same time just and holy and righteous. We thank you, Lord, that you have moved in such a way where you have become man, Lord Jesus Christ, in order that you might identify with us sinners and so save us from our sin but then also be a lifeline for us in every single part of our Christian walk. Father, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would cause us, that you would cause our frail hearts and minds and bodies to look to Christ who is our Savior. We pray, pray, Lord, that in doing so, we would press deeper into the gospel and exalt Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin. In your great name, we pray these things. Amen.